Good afternoon, and thank you for joining us. I'm Jenny Weisbord, a senior product manager with the Aspen Institute's Economic Opportunities Program. At the Economic Opportunities Program, we focus on advancing a more just and inclusive economy by expanding individuals' opportunities to connect to quality work, to participate in business ownership, and to build the economic stability necessary to pursue opportunity. We recognize that race and gender and place all dictate who has access to economic opportunity in America. And we work to address systemic racism as part of our work to advance economic justice. And I'm Tom Strong. I'm the Director of Employer Activation at the National Fund for Workforce Solutions. The National Fund is a dynamic national network of 30, over 30 communities that take a demand-driven and evidence-based approach towards workforce development. At the local level, partner organizations of ours, like Civic Works, which will be featured in this call today, uh, they contribute resources, they test out ideas, they collect data, and they work to improve public, both public policies and business practice, practices that help workers succeed and help employers uh, gather the talent that they need to compete. And today, we're really thrilled to welcome you to, to our conversation, which is, can investing in workers support small business resiliency even through the pandemic? This conversation is part of the Economic Opportunities Program's ongoing job quality and practice series, in which we highlight innovative work by practitioners and businesses to advance job quality. We're grateful to Prudential Financial for their support of this work. We're also grateful to Walmart for supporting our reimagined retail initiative to enhance job quality and mobility for retail and service sector workers, including the work we'll be lifting up during today's webinar. Since the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic, small businesses and their workers have faced extraordinary challenges. Small business owners, many of whom were already operating with razor thin profit margins before the pandemic, have had to move quickly to transform their operations to keep employees and customers safe. Experts estimate that one in five small businesses may close their doors by the end of this year. And because of structural racism, black owned businesses are shuttering at more than twice the rate of white owned businesses. Over the last few months, working closely with our wonderful partners at the National Fund and at Pacific Community Ventures, our research team at the Economic Opportunities Program has had the opportunity to interview and learn from small businesses and the workforce organizations that support them about their experiences during the pandemic. We've heard just how hard these months have been, how stressful it's been to stay up to date on safety recommendations and to afford new protective measures with lower and unpredictable revenues. But we've also heard business owners describe how this challenging moment has underscored that business and worker interests are aligned. For small business owners, the safety and stability of their employees is essential for business survival. Recognizing this interdependence, small business owners are finding creative solutions and leaning on unconventional partners. Today, you will hear from two restaurant owners in Baltimore, Maryland, who, and you'll hear about their experiences both during the pandemic and how they learned that supporting their employees is critical to business resilience. With support from the National Fund, these restaurant owners worked with local, a local workforce organization, Baltimore Civic Works. Allie Bushing, who led this effort at Civic Works, is going to share how she used the Good Jobs, Good Businesses Toolkit, which was developed by Reimagine Retail Partner Pacific Community Ventures, in order to coach and support businesses in making job quality improvements. And one reason the National Fund funds collaboratives in so many different regions is that we recognize the importance of local innovation and the fact that different parts of our country may require different kinds of solutions to their own workforce challenges. 
In this, CivicWorks has been an exemplary site. They've both prioritized important and challenging sectors like retail, and they've come up with creative ways to partner with businesses on emerging issues like job quality. Now, before we start, it's my pleasure today to review the technology needs. So all attendees are gonna be muted during this webinar. There is closed captioning available for this event. In order to activate it, click the CC button on the bottom of your screen. And we welcome your questions. Please use, during the webinar, please use the Q&A box on the bottom of the Zoom screen. You can also upvote questions other people ask that are of interest to you. We'll leave plenty of time at the end for your own verbal questions. Try to get to as many questions as we can. We do encourage you to use social media. If you have Twitter, please tweet about this conversation. We'll be using the hashtag job quality, which is one word. And then if you have any technical issues during the webinar, please email us at eop.program at aspeninstitute.org. Finally, this webinar is being recorded and will be shared by email and posted on the website. And it's now my pleasure to introduce our first speaker who will share opening remarks. Gayatri Agnew is Senior Director of Opportunity at walmart.org. Gayatri serves on the leadership team of Walmart's Global Responsibility Division, where she leads strategy and partnerships for Walmart's efforts on economic mobility. I have to say, I find it particularly inspiring to hear how Gayatri's experiences working service sector jobs and attending community colleges uh, inform her perspectives about talent and opportunity. Um, Gayatri has a long and accomplished career, and she's also done critically important work to advocate for women in civic life. So I encourage you to read her full bio on our website for more details so you can more fully appreciate how awesome Gayatri is and how honored we are to have her with us today. Gayatri, I'll turn it over to you. Thanks so much, Jenny. Um, Jenny and Tom, it's my pleasure to be here and thank you for having me to open up this panel. Um, I, I wanna call out and I know we'll hear more about them, but I just, I wanna call out and to thank Laura, Sean and Allie for your leadership um, in our economy right now. Um, you know, I, I sit at Walmart, which is a fairly large company, um, but one of the things that we understand intrinsically and deeply at Walmart is that the economy is a collection of people of humans and that the way our economy works is a system. And when parts of that system don't work, the other parts of that system so too fall apart. And our economy is struggling right now for a host of factors, many of which Jenny and Tom talked about in our in our opening. But you know, for Walmart, we sit in 4,700 communities across the US. So we are a place that is both in and of the community. Um, a lot of folks don't necessarily understand the relationship that Walmart has to small business, but we have it in a number of ways. We employ 1.4 million U.S. workers, and many of those workers are also engaged in small businesses in their community. So there's a relationship between our workers and small businesses in our community. Some are founders of those businesses, some are employees of those businesses, some are former workers in those businesses. Walmart also physically houses over 10,000 small businesses who we were able to provide rent relief to because we own the building where they physically locate, co-locate um, through the early part of the pandemic. And then more recently, as we've scaled up and launched Marketplace, uh, which is walmart.com's third party um, online retail, we've actually enabled thousands of businesses and in particular small businesses to access channels for sales through Walmart's platform. So it, it's a relationship. 
And when small businesses thrive, Walmart thrives. And when our economy is thriving, people in community can thrive. And so I was thrilled to get to just join and to kick off with maybe two, two quick comments. One is that, you know, Jenny mentioned racial equity, the work around good jobs, and how we all survive this recession together. And I would argue that that's actually an equation. When we do one, we do the other. And when we do that, that is how we survive. Um, this current moment and maybe do more than survive, but actually thrive. And so I think our challenge today is just to spend some time exploring how we find our shared humanity that lives inside of a complex economic system and how through that complex economic system, we see opportunities to create new and innovative and maybe unusual partnerships. Um, so above all else, I just want to thank the small business owners who are um, leading this work um, on the ground and in community. Thank you for your innovation and your willingness to think in new and different ways and in how you've approached this work. And a huge thanks to the National Fund and the Aspen Institute. Walmart.org is very proud to support your work. You guys are, are changing the world on the ground place by place. So I'll turn it back to you, Jenny. Thank you so much, Gayatri. And I'm loving this equation of racial equity plus good jobs equals surviving and thriving together. Um, I think that theme will um, be central in today's conversation. And, and now I'm delighted to introduce our panelists. Um, Sean Parker is co-owner of Connie's Chicken and Waffles, a restaurant with locations in Baltimore, Maryland and Wilmington, Delaware. Laura Wagner is co-owner of Wellcrafted Kitchen, a pizza shop and pizza truck in Baltimore. So if you're not already hungry, you definitely will be by the end of this conversation. And Ali Bushing is an experienced workforce development professional and former business development coordinator at Civic Works in Baltimore. You can read their full bios on our website. Um, so thanks so much to each of you for joining us. We know how much you're dealing with right now and we're really grateful to you for spending the afternoon with us and sharing the important work that you're doing. We're gonna start with a little bit of background on your organizations. And Sean, I wanna to turn to you first. Tell us about why you and your brother Kari decided to start a restaurant and why you named it Connie's Chicken and Waffles. Thank you so much, Jenny. And uh, hello, everyone. Again, I'm Sean Parker, co-owner of Connie's Chicken and Waffles. Um, so prior to starting Connie's Chicken and Waffles, Carr and I were in the corporate world, um, but we realized that we wanted to have an impact and actually help people. Um, we were doing that in our individual careers, but not to the magnitude that we wanted to. Um, so we decided to start this restaurant as kind of a social enterprise. Um, we give food, but we also convey a sense of love and community to everyone that we touch. Um, we started at Lexington Market, which is one of the oldest public markets in the U.S., um, located in downtown Baltimore, uh, which is also the center point for transportation here, and it touches the entire city and community as, as a whole. Um, we wanted to provide high-quality, quick service, and a feel-good food experience, which is something that we saw that was missing to the entire industry. Um, we named the business after our mom, affectionately known as Miss Connie, uh, who's still with us. Um, because she's known for showing love around our family. She's the matriarch of our family. So all the family gatherings are at our, our house, um, is, which is similar vibe we want to actually bring to Connie's. We want all of our customers and friends and family members that we like to call them now to feel comfortable when it comes to any of our locations. Um, we learn love from our mom and we want to show you know, similar love to the entire community. Um, so in 2016, when we started, it was actually right after the, the incident that happened in Freddie Gray, which is right here in Baltimore. And we noticed that there was a lack of love throughout the city. So we realized that the whole world needs that love that our mom showed with us. Um, we, we named it after our mom, but I also have to give credit to our dad too, who really pushed the entrepreneurship aspect and really showed us that side of things. Thanks, Sean. Um, 
And Laura, I want to turn to you next. Um, tell us the well-crafted kitchen origin story. What, what inspired you all to, to found this business? Yeah, awesome. Thank you so much. And thanks so much for including us in this discussion. So I am representing four co-owners, um, Liz, Ryan, and Tom are my other co-owners. And we all met in college. Um, we took different career paths, um, but we came together um, over a shared passion for food and wanting to bring people together over food. Um, we landed on pizza, specifically wood-fired pizza, um, because we wanted um, kind of like a blank canvas. We wanted to prioritize the local food economy and creating um, sustainable local sources of food. Um, and you can kind of put just about anything on pizza and people are willing to try it. So people who don't like beets will try beets if you put it on pizza. <laughs> and so um, that was kind of um, one of our initial inspirations. Um, we started in 2016 with a 1949 Dodge truck that has a wood fired pizza built into it. Um, and so we did private events, um, catering, we were at farmers markets, um, popping up at breweries and wineries. Um, and that was, that was the first two years of our business, purely mobile. And then in 2018, we opened a permanent kitchen within Union Craft Brewing. Um, and so we've been there for the past two years. It's not only the brewery space, but it's a collective space that also has a rock climbing gym, a coffee shop, um, Baltimore Spirits Company, um, the Charmery and other, other local producers. Um, yeah, and at that time we went from a four owner operation to, to a 20 person team. Um, so that was a really exciting and, and big expansion for us. Um, and so we've been doing that for about two years. Great. Um, Ali, you spent several years managing the Good Business Works initiative at Civic Works. Um, so tell us about what that program does and how you came to know and work with Sean and Laura. Sure. Um, so Good Business Works is a new initiative that's sort of an extension of a lot of the work that we've been doing with Civic Works Center for Sustainable Careers over the past 10 years. Um, and it's a new collaborative initiative that um, brings together businesses and um, workforce experts and community partners, all centered around this belief that by investing in quality jobs, uh, we can also help to strengthen local businesses in our communities. Um, and so in 2018, um, we were selected as one of three um, locations um, and sites through the um, National Fund for Workforce Solutions Advancing Careers in Retail Initiative, which really kickstarted our work um, and um, you know, helped us to understand the importance of focusing on retail and food services and industries that aren't typically known for their you know, quality jobs. Um, but we really wanted to be able to lift up this, um, you know, encounter this narrative um, that in order to um, you know, be successful in business, that it has to be at the expense of your workers and that you have to you know, squeeze labor costs as much as possible. And we were seeing you know, wonderful businesses in our community like Wellcrafted and Connie's that were doing just the opposite. They were finding success um, by um, really investing in their workers. Um, and we wanted to be able to, you know, partner with them, um, you know, particularly, you know, partnering with small and locally owned businesses to be able to learn from their experiences and lift up their expertise um, to be able to expand, um, you know, practices that are going to um, increase job quality 
create more equitable and inclusive uh, workplaces for people, you know, regardless of race and gender identity, um, and put every Baltimorean on the pathway um, to a meaningful family sustaining career. Um, and so by working with small businesses, we really wanted to be able to um, you know, lift up these messages and encourage um, more and more um, businesses to be able to follow in the footsteps of great companies like uh, Connie's and Wellcrafted. So when you all set out to do this work together, no one could have anticipated the moment uh, that we are living in now. And, and I wanna spend a minute talking about that. Um, and Sean and Laura, I'm gonna turn to you for this. I'd really like to understand how the pandemic and the widespread call for racial justice have impacted your businesses. You know, what's it been like to be a small business owner during this time? And what steps are you taking to support your employees? And Laura, maybe I'll turn to you first for this one. Just, just a small question. <laughs> but yeah, so um, I would say March, um, we, Roughly before any mandates came in place, um, we made a joint decision with union um, that we needed to close the tap room or any any direct service of food um, or beverage. Um, so we switched to a purely carry out model, um, which was not something we regularly did at all, um, but switched to purely dockside pickup. We also made it a dockside pickup for the entire collective so folks could get anything um, that you, any of the collective businesses sold via via one site. Um, so we also engaged our local farm community so people could um, sell their farm goods um, through our site as well. Um, and so that was kind of our model uh, starting in, in mid-March. Um, kind of May, June was the realization this was going to last much longer <laughs> than we thought it was going to. And also to step back at that point, um, we had reduced our team by about a third. Um, so so we were, were down about 30% of our team. Um, PPP was ending and we realized that this was going to be a long haul. Um, and so we started to think about three different priorities. Um, the first and foremost was um, at that point they were starting to say, and they still say that 15% of restaurants will survive the pandemic. And so our number one priority had to be that we had to be the 15% that stayed in business because that meant A, we had a business and B, we had work for our team. Um, and so that was really the, the top priority. The second thing was how to support our team through this moment. Um, there, the pandemic um, has lots of levels of stressors um, and our team was not excluded from that. Um, and there was also this really intense call for racial justice in a city that is, you know, wants to be on the forefront of that call. And so how to, to support our team um, in, in the context of the world we were living in. Um, and then the third was, how can we just emerge better from this? How can we not, there will be no, there is no going back to a normal. Um, and so how can we just emerge stronger? Um, and so the reality is, is we've been focused on the number one priority, which is generating revenue to stay open. Um, and so to do that, we opened the beer garden in July, reservation only, um, very limited capacity. Um, we used to do a ton of catering um, 
and private events, um, weddings, um, which are not a thing <laughs> in 2020. Um, and so we had to pivot to do what we called neighborhood truck stops. And so we asked neighborhoods to host our truck um, and gather their neighborhoods in theory to, to have about 100 guaranteed pre-ordered pizza sales within a neighborhood. Um, and so that has been really great. Um, we're going to be back to a winter farmer's market, which we haven't done in two years. Um, and the idea has really been this fall to generate as much revenue as we can um, so that we can sustain ourselves through the winter and ideally keep our keep the entire team we have left employed and, and reduce as few hours as possible. Um, to the second point of how to support our team during that, um, We've been trying to just be as transparent and honest as we can about what we can promise, what we can't. Um, I think one of the big things was committing whatever hours we gave you, we committed to, to you got those hours because um, we know that everyone was in a financial precari precarious situation. Um, we did a lot of just checking in one-on-one, -on -one, seeing how people are feeling, um, where where their pulse was um, during any given moment. And I think just also being flexible and realizing that no one is operating at 100% still, right? Everyone is, is still in a little bit of a challenging spot. And so kind of um, allowing for forgiveness of ourselves and of our team. Um, we had to get creative at a lot of, um, problem solving. Um, one thing is um, we didn't have money to solve problems, right? We're, <laughs> we're going um, for a break even at best. And so um, transportation was a challenge for our team. Um, most of them previously took public transit um, and they didn't feel safe doing that. Um, so they were transitioning to bikes. Um, uh, and the best solution was to like hop in our car <laughs> and we would drive them um, because it's just, you know, COVID is illuminating a lot of the inequities um, that just exist in our city. Uh, we tried to do lunch trades for a while. So we would trade team meals with other restaurants just to like spice it up. So instead of like doing a team meal where we bought a team meal, we would, you know, go to a neighbor restaurant and say, we'll give you pizza if you give us whatever you got. Um, and so that was a way to just kind of boost morale and it was an exciting thing. Um, the third of like how we emerge better um, is has unfortunately gotten put on the back burner um, right now. Like if we can make it to, the imaginary deadline of April 1st when the sun will shine again um, and people will do outdoor things with our entire team um, with minimal to no hours reductions, that's, um, that's going to be a huge win for us. And so that's kind of where our focus is um, with knowing that the other things that we want to do and need to do aren't, aren't going away, um, but they're a little bit back burner. Yeah, and, and Sean, let me ask you uh, to sort of talk through your experience during this time. Um, what was it like, you know, running Connie's um, through this pandemic time for you? What has it been like? Uh, certainly. So looking back now, it's not as bad as it was when we were actually in the moment. When things first happened, and I'll never forget because we closed all of our locations um, 
on my birthday. So March 17th, I was planning to, you know, spend a birthday like I do every other year. And, you know, we're getting calls from the management teams of the markets that we're in, because um, we're in three different markets currently, advising us that we need to actually close. So looking back now, I'm, I'm a lot more calmer than I was back then. I mean, at that moment, we were frantic. Uh, Kari and I, my business partner, we, we just went into react mode. You know, we closed all of our locations. We were giving supplies to our team members and telling them to, you know, to clean up and cook as much food as you want and whatever else you, you don't cook, take it home to your friends and family because we had no idea when we would return. Um, luckily, a couple of days after that, we were able to uh, work with the management team and that Broadway market location down here in Fells Point to reopen in more of a carry out, um, drive by, if you will, capacity. So what we did was, um, each individual vendor that's inside of Broadway Market had their own door. Luckily, we have these lovely French patio doors that were installed when the building was renovated. Um, so each vendor here took a door and that was our you know, quasi restaurant. That was our takeout window. And, and the entire Broadway Market turned into a back of the kitchen where everyone was running around doing their thing. Um, but to the customers, the customers had no idea that you know, we were in the back doing all that. They just received the finished product. Um, so we closed those closed two of the three locations and just worked out of Broadway Market. Um, we were open initially 12 hours a day from uh, nine to nine. Um, we gave our team members the opportunity to uh, work double shifts to help it limit, limit some of their interactions um, by taking the bus to and from work. Um, we also had to drop some of them off. If those that weren't comfortable taking the bus or public transportation, we would actually take them home um, after their shifts. Luckily, um, kind of how Laura mentioned, we, we were awarded uh, some PPP funds, which helped bridge a little bit of the gap in terms of funding. Um, but a lot of things in terms of what we did with our team members, a lot of things we were already doing prior to, um, to, prior to COVID. So we were always wearing gloves throughout the day, um, hats and hair nets and things like that. We did do a giveaway, a mask giveaway. So we have our branded masks that we give to all our team members. But we also realized that in, in order to protect our team members, we also had to protect the public. So we did a mass giveaway um, to anyone in the area that needed, needed one could come down free with, without any purchase of our food, um, could have a free mask. Um, I think, I think that's, that's, the bulk, that's the bulk of what we did. Like I said, right now it's, it's a lot easier, a lot more calmer than, than I was back then. But at the moment, it was, it was pretty hectic. I'd love to hear you talk about one more thing, which is um, how you've communicated with your workers during this time, because I know you've been really thoughtful about that. Definitely. So for us, um, communication is, is extremely important. All the team members have my phone number. Um, they call anytime, any time of the day. Um, we have an internal messaging system that we use. So if there's any questions, if I can't get to it immediately, the other team members on the team will respond. Um, so we have that. Additionally, we're also working on an app, an internal app that our company is working on, which will help manage some of the tasks that we have. It can also be used for communication as well. Um, so between the app that we are working on, as well as the apps that we've been using since, since shortly after we started, um, the team members are able to get in contact with us. Um, Ali, I want to I turn it back to you. Um, I know we have a lot of workforce professionals in our, in our audience today, and I know they're interested in learning how you go about building relationships with small businesses. So what advice would you have for them about how to do this, you know, particularly in the current pandemic environment? Um, what, what steps did you take to build these relationships with Wellcrafted and with Connie's? Sure, so I think that sometimes there's this fear among workforce development providers. Um, about really broaching issues of job quality with 
um, our employer partners, because of course we want to be able to maintain those good relationships and ensure that, you know, we can help our um, clients, you know, seek um, future opportunities with them. Um, but what I've really found inspiring about working with small businesses is how receptive, um, you know, so many business owners like Laura and Sean are to these messages around job quality and, you know, how much they really care about, you know, the communities that they're operating in and the workers, you know, that are a part of their team. And so um, I was introduced to Laura and Wellcrafted um, after they had just received a Kiva loan to grow their business. And what I heard from all of the um, co-owners reiterated over and over is that as we um, you know, see our business grow, we wanna make sure that all of the members of our team who have been instrumental in building that are going to be able to share in our success. Um, and with Connie's, I was really impressed by um, the, their focus on creating you know, good local jobs for youth in their community, and then really partnering with them to explore, you know, what are your passions, what are your career goals, and how can we support you to take the steps that you need to get there? Um, and so you know, these um, companies are both a great example of um, you know, small businesses that already were fully in this mindset of investing in their workers and just you know, maybe needed some more, um, you know, didn't always have the time or tools or resources to be able to take the steps that they wanted uh, to be able to. So they came to us to just, you know, gain a little bit more concrete support for that. Um, and I think that that's a really um, critical role that workforce development can play, um, you know, in really being able to come in and partner with small businesses and bring in expertise to be able to create the structures and systems of support that are going to, you know, of course, serve the needs of workers, but also be able to create a more engaged, productive, and skilled workplace that are going to help um, small businesses succeed over the long term as well. So I think in approaching these conversations with um, small business owners, it's really important to, um, you know, keep the needs and interests of workers at the heart of what you're doing, um, but not to forget to show that you also care about the success of the business as well. Um, and so I really try to approach all of these conversations by first really listening and trying to appreciate as much about the entire context that the business is operating within. And then really try to tap into the goals that a business has articulated for themselves to be able to connect specific job quality strategies and employee investment you know, ideas um, to how they can be compatible with those goals and even help you know, um, leadership to you know, take a little bit off their plate to be able to you know, advance them. Um, and I think it's really important as well. And, um, you know, through efforts like PCV, it's been really valuable in the um, Pacific Community Ventures Toolkit and advising partnership. It's been really valuable to be able to bring in other kinds of business development experts, you know, folks that can provide access to capital or legal services or procurement opportunities, um, not just to provide a little extra incentive um, for small businesses, but also to be able to position job quality within this more holistic, um, you know, plan for long-term business development. Um, and I think one more thing I want to add really quickly is that, you know, during, um, you know, especially during the pandemic, small businesses are under so much more increased pressure um, and, you know, have all of this stress to do more. Um, you know, on even tighter budgets. And so even the most motivated um, small business owners are not going to be able to make all the changes that they'd like to see happen overnight. Um, so it's important, you know, in approaching these relationships to, you know, come at it with a lot of patience and 
creativity and flexibility. Um, you know, to make it as easy as possible for business owners to start taking the steps that they'd like to around their employee investment goals, um, but really focus on building those long-term relationships so that business owners know that they can trust you and come back to you for support um, when they're able to, you know, and have the capacity to make those deeper investments. That's really helpful. Um, Sean and Laura, I'm curious if there's anything either of you would like to add about how and why you started working with Ali and with CivicWorks and why it's helpful for a small business to partner with a workforce organization. Yeah, so I guess um, I'll get started on that one. So actually another community organization referred us to Ali. Um, we wanted to make sure that we had a pipeline program for our team members. <clears throat> We interact with a lot of business owners across the city and we realized that they had needs just as well as we do. 90% of our team members don't want to be in food service. However, it's a low barrier to entry, um, which is why a lot of folks come. So we wanted to create kind of a win-win situation um, with our team members and giving them opportunities with other business owners that need um, workers. So we wanted to help people get skills and then within six to 12 months, depending on their performance, they can at least get an interview um, elsewhere, one of the other businesses that we, we connect with. So that's how we ultimately end up connecting with Allie um, through the interest in, that she offered this, us the opportunity. Um, the initial reason we were interested in with working with Allie is that you know we're constantly pushing our team members and we, we wanted to give them better opportunities. Um, we had, I think one manager prior to working with Allie and we since then have promoted two other team members to become um, managers as well. I think, um Similarly uh, to Sean, there's <laughs> when you become an entrepreneur, you are like a default manager, right? As an owner, you become a default manager, um, <laughs> whether you whether you planned or not. Um, and so, I think one of the initial things that drew us to to Civic Works and and Ali was this idea of like management training. Um, that we knew we were doing okay, but that we could do better. Um, and so that was that was one of the things, not only for us, but for the the leadership within our team. Um, we also, Ali helped us to do an employee engagement survey, um, which was really valuable in the sense um, that for it to be done by a third party, right? And so we knew a couple things. One, that if we created and administered a survey, it would not be the most accurate um, or representative of, of how our team actually felt. Um, and also that we would nitpick over like all the little things. And so Ali was able to not only help us to conduct the survey, but to kind of help us summarize the results. Um, and then we were able to work with our business mentors um, on how, how to address things that were challenging or how to continue to do things that we were doing well. Um, and I, I think the other really valuable thing was to have mentors from business mentors from outside our immediate circle. So you tend to create this, this business, business leaders community circle, but they tend to be people just like you <laughs> who are doing the same things. And so to have people have an outside perspective on your business um, was, was really valuable. And, and they were really helping us to think about how to think of business growth, not in terms of revenue, but in terms of how we can pathway our team along that growth um, in a way that they can grow with us. Um, 
And I just think it's really, um, I can't speak enough to, it's intriguing to think about that when we started this process about employee engagement and wanting to retain employees, it was an employee market, right? It was at this time in which like everyone wanted, like it was very hard to hire because it was an employee's market. And, and, um, and so job quality was important for business, right? Because I was competing with every other business. And now as we, you know, continue to go into an economic recession and it put very potentially will become an employer's market, I just feel like working with businesses to continue to promote job quality is going to be even more important um, because it's still it's still good business and it's still good ethics um, to, to maintain that job quality, even, even if you, in theory, have the upper hand in the hiring. I'm really glad you both raised um, sort of how you're thinking about pipelines and pathways because this theme came up in a number of questions that were raised by registrants um, before the webinar. You know, th this question around sort of how you think about upscaling and advancement when you have a small team as a small business. And I think you've both been very deliberate in how you think about this and creative and um, appreciate, you know, how you're both thinking about that. Um, and, and Laura, you took us where I was hoping to go next, which is sort of about um, how and why uh, to prioritize job quality in these uncertain times. Um, so Sean, I, I wanna start with you on this question. Um, what do you see as the business benefits of investing in your workers? Um, how does supporting your workforce contribute to business survival um, in this challenging moment? Thanks, Jenny. Um, and I know it sounds so cliche, but literally the team members are the backbone of our business. When we first started, myself, my business partner, and our mom were the three individuals that worked day in and day out. But we realized shortly after starting that we could not do this alone. There's no way we could have multiple locations with just three people because I can't work the front and the back. Um, so the reason why, I, the reason why we focus so much on our team members and the reason why we've been pushing them so much is because we realize that most team members, they, they don't do good. The reason why they don't do good is not because they're not capable. It's because they don't have hope, which, which sucks to say, but it's the truth. You know, it's not intelligence or schooling. It's as if they feel like they're not good enough. Um, the folks that, the folks that we get, you know, we realize that they're good regardless of where they came from. They, you know, they're doing amazing. They're, they're amazing folks. Um, but it's hard for them to see that in themselves. You know, everyone, everyone certainly has value. Um, so when we hire someone, the first thing we do is we ask them, what are they interested in? You know, we tell them if money wasn't involved, what would you want to do? Because nine times out of 10, it's not food service. Um, so our team is very passionate about miscellaneous things. You know, we have folks that want to be hairstylists. We have folks that want to be engineers. We have folks that want to be doctors. And in this present moment, they are working in food service, but we realize that they're, they, they're, they can be a lot greater if they choose to, you know. Um, so after the COVID shutdown, most of our team members actually came back and was primarily because of the support that we gave them both before and during COVID. Um, the majority of our team members truly want to be here, even though some of them had the opportunity to um, get on unemployment and, and things like that, or maybe their families were supporting them. Most of our team members truly, truly wanted to be here. And that's based on the environment that we created um, prior, prior to COVID. Um, even with our Delaware team members, those that were out of work for over six months. You know, we were constantly talking to them, you know, once every two weeks or so, having chats with them, you know, offering them any support that we could within reason. Um, so I would definitely say those 
that's that's the bulk of the reason why, Jane, that we we feel as though our workers are really important. And how about for you, Laura? What do you see as the business benefits of investing in your workers, especially right now? Yeah, I think uh, right now it's it's even more true. So right now we have seven team members outside of the four owners, and so and. Uh, six of them have been with us for over two years um, and they have been working day and out um, since since COVID for sure and we are like at peak performance right now <laughs> so like the the part of the razor thin margins is that like everyone has to bring their a game every day we're at like peak efficiency in order to make it work um, and so to lose any of them at this time would be so detrimental because they are the most well-trained, the most experienced that we have. So from a business perspective, the concept of hiring and training a new person um, and getting them from like zero to 60 in a short period of time is feels very daunting, but also just um, not only a lot of work, but a lot of like time and money that we would have to spend. And so right now, um, it, it's just like the most essential time to maintain um, our employees. And also I think one of the things too, in terms of like incentivizing safety is, um, is that they feel invested in our business, right? And so safety is not, is just as much about your behavior at work as your behavior outside of work. And, and so much of that is them understanding like how essential we are to the team, right? And so we all have to keep up our utmost safety to keep um, our business open. Um, and, and we all know that we depend on each other for that. Um, and so I think that has been a really essential thing as well. And Ali, why do you think it's important for workforce organizations to focus on job quality right now, you know, even as they may be struggling to connect unemployed people to work? Yeah, so obviously workforce developers are in a really difficult position right now because we're trying to balance the financial needs of you know, the job seekers that we're working with who are facing widespread unemployment and displacement. Um, but also balancing that with grappling with these new risks and threats to health and safety and just overall well-being. Um, but I think that, you know, it's not only our responsibility to advocate for our clients, um, but it maybe it's more important than ever to be continuing to lift up these conversations around job quality. I think particularly as workforce development providers, we're in this really unique position to be sort of a liaison between businesses and workers and be able to sort of communicate um, and lift up the needs of both. And so one of the things that I found really helpful in working with um, our small business partners has been um, to really be able to sort of expand and um, talk a little bit differently about what job quality can look like. Um, so of course, things like wages and benefits are really important. Um, and we don't want to forget about those, but, you know, particularly for small businesses, um, you know, like Laura mentioned that have to be operating, you know, on these really tight budgets um, and have all of these new constraints. Um, you know, the start of an employee investment strategy can look like um, giving workers more power in decisions that are being made about the business operations or the health and safety policies that are being put in place, or even in how those tight financials are being spent through things like open book management. Um, or it could be, you know, adapting scheduling, um, you know, like Sean mentioned, um, to, you know, um, 
you know, create more flexibility to allow workers to meet new caregiving responsibilities or, you know, address new transportation challenges. Um, and for those businesses who are doing well right now or do have more, you know, means to be able to invest in their workers, um, you know, your people are going to remember how they were treated during this time of crisis and how you responded. And so those employers who really double down on their workforce investments are going to see long-term gains in, you know, increased loyalty among workers and retention um, and productivity. And so I think that, you know, overall COVID-19 has really shown a spotlight on how all of our systems are failing frontline workers from rising, you know, inequality and, um, you know, the wealth gap to, you know, continued and perpetuated disparities and discrimination against people of color in the workplace. Um, and, you know, the inability of many workers to access, you know, affordable and reliable mental and um, physical health care. Um, but at the same time, we see more and more people across the country who are really paying attention to the experiences of essential frontline workers in industries like food services and retail. Um, and so we have this choice where we can either to we can either sort of continue allowing this um, really challenging economic time to further erode the working conditions of frontline workers and allow more and more businesses to go under, um, particularly small businesses, or we can use this as a catalyst and really recommit ourselves and push our local leaders to reinvest in the types of policy solutions and um, systems of support that are going to you know, meet the needs of frontline workers um, and small businesses and to be able to reshape our systems um, in ways that create more broad-based prosperity for all. That is such a powerful point. Um, and one of the questions that's come in um, from a few different audience members, um, I think really connects nicely to that. Um, it's about what they can do to support small businesses during this time, either as customers or as advocates for stronger public sector support. Um, so I wanna start with you, Laura, and ask, you know, what supports do small businesses need to survive and thrive right now? Yeah, I mean, I think um, winter is looking a little daunting <laughs> for a lot of your local food businesses who have depended on outdoor spaces um, as, as a main source of revenue. Um, and so I just, I would, I would challenge customers um, and, and just people in general to think about um, where where they vote with their dollars and and to know that where where you shop now is what's going to emerge. Um, and so just to be really conscious about um, if and how you you spend spend your dollars um, and do so in a way um, that are that are the businesses that you want to be there after the pandemic. Um, and then and also uh, like maybe take some time to think about, do you know how their tip structure works? Do they know how the pay structure works? Do they know the job quality um, of, of those businesses? And so to really kind of take some time to think about that. Um, and similarly kind of going along um, tipping and uh, the votes that consumers can make is to think about, it's, it's very challenging in a tipped, industry to eliminate tips because um, because people are so accustomed to the prices plus tips, right? And so just to, to be a conscious consumer um, and thinking about um, 
how prices may vary um, because of tips or no tips and, and, and that that really directly infects the workers and therefore um, the, the economy, right? That your neighbors. <laughs> uh, and so just to be aware of that. Sean, anything you want to add to that? Um, no, everything Laura said was amazing. It's it's very relevant to what we do here at Connie's. Um, kind of how she how Laura mentioned the tip structures. Our team members, you know, they're all paid a fair wage, but tips are something that they really, really look forward to. Um, I feel like some folks don't emphasize as much in the carryout capacity as opposed to you know sit down dining restaurants. Um, so tips are major for us. Also, support in terms of technology. It's, I was talking to one of my, and I'll be very transparent here, talking to a couple of my team members the other day, and I didn't realize how many of them are utilizing their phones <laughs> to, to type papers or to do the miscellaneous activities that we, we ask them to do here at work. Um, going back to the fact that, we, yes, we are a restaurant, we are operating in the food space, but we also cons consider ourselves some of a startup, so everyone here does everything. So our cook is also helping with street team, our cashier is also helping with marketing, um, so one of the biggest areas of support that I would actually say that our business needs right now could really use is um, more technology for our team members. So iPads, laptops, things like that. That's one thing that we're really pushing to get all of our team members right now. Ali, I want to toss you the sort of policy piece of this question, um, which is around how, how people on the webinar can advocate for, for stronger public sector support. Uh, do you have thoughts about that? Yeah, so um, first of all, I do want to do a little bit of a shameless plug that, um, you know, kind of building on Laura's point and um, Sean, that if you want to get out and support small businesses this holiday season, and you live in the Baltimore region, um, we've developed um, a new mobile app. So if you're not comfortable going in and asking, you know, how much do you pay your workers or what are your tipping policies? You know, you can find this list of businesses that have been vetted as, you know, sharing these values. Um, and so you can um, use, you know, whatever app store you use, um, Good Business Works Baltimore. So that's a really easy place to start. Um, but I think in terms of policy solutions, um, you know, there's a lot happening at the national level, um, but also at the local levels. I think you wanna, you know, not forget about, um, you know, what your city and your state can do um, to create, you know, investments in local businesses. And um, what I've been hearing from a lot of businesses is that there's uh, this idea that like, there's all of this money <laughs> that everyone's getting, um, but it's important to remember that, you know, a lot of these big federal programs have still been inaccessible to a lot of small businesses that funding gets used up really quickly. So it's important to, you know, be contacting your local legislators um, and kind of tracking what's going on at the federal level um, and, you know, contacting those folks as well um, to support, um, you know, additional funding through programs like the Paycheck Protection Act, Act that's going to help um, both, you know, workers and businesses. Um, but, you know, and Baltimore has developed a lot of really creative, um, you know, policies and programs um, at the city level to advocate, um, you know, for support for business, small businesses as well. So I think, you know, it's, it's continuing to look at multiple levels and, um, you know, finding ways that um, we're not forgetting to, you know, continue to invest in small businesses during the pandemic. Um, and I saw another question. I hope it's all right for me to jump into that. Um, but someone asked about the $15 minimum wage, which I'm sure is a very contentious issue at this time. But um, I just want to say, 
yes, I think that that's a very important policy to pass that the value of the minimum wage has really eroded over time um, and you know is not um, sufficient to meet you know an individual or family's needs. But at the same time, we also need to be investing in supports for businesses to be able and small businesses to be able to meet that. So you know it can be challenging, especially right now, to maintain and raise wages on a really limited budget. So we need investments from our local governments and our federal government to be able to make that um, you know, accessible um, and sustainable for small businesses as well. Um, we're getting many terrific questions coming through. So we'll try to get to as many of these as we can. Um, I'm gonna start with a couple of questions for our two business owners. Um, are there strategies you're using to retain workers during the pandemic? And, and um, when you've had to downsize, have you thought about layoffs versus furloughing versus reducing staff hours? Yeah, so um, when we first knew we were gonna be reducing hours and reducing team, bleh, reducing team size, um, it very much so went into one-on-one -on -one conversations with each team member in terms of what was the best option for them. Um, because what we could do was to lay out the options and make sure they had all the information of what was unemployment going to look like at that time. What was, what would a furlough mean? What would a layoff mean? What would our reduction mean? Um, and just really help to give them as much information as possible. Um, and, you know, none of them were great choices, right? None of them were like, you get to do exactly what you've been doing for the past year. Um, but that people could then make some choices based on what they needed for their lives. Um, luckily, that worked out well for us and the numbers <laughs> fell into place in terms of how, how we could balance our team. Um, but that really, we, that's, we were grateful that that was what we were able to do is to have, have honest um, conversations with our team about the options. Anything you wanna to add to that, Sean? I was gonna say, yes, yeah, similar to, to Laura, um, we were just very transparent with our team members, similar to what we are you know, at all times of our business, but um, we just kind of let them know what we were faced with, which was a little difficult because we were kind of playing it by ear in a lot of ways, um, but you know, we still have to keep the confidence up to them and let them know, you know that we are here for them and that we are taking control of the situation. Um, so our Delaware location was tough because it's a little over an hour away from, from Baltimore. Um, but our two Baltimore locations, we gave all of the team members the opportunity to come to work. So we didn't start with any layoffs. Um, it was more so, so once we, well, actually, let me step back for a second. Once we reopened the Broadway Market location, we welcomed all the team members in Baltimore to come to work. Um, some of them realized that, you know, they weren't comfortable working throughout these times. Some of them used this as opportunity to go on and do other things. Um, surprisingly enough, we actually hired more people in the midst of COVID because the demand grew and the team members that we had, uh, you know, the workload was so much where they were working way too many hours and they needed some time to relax. So um, for us, we, we certainly spoke to them when it all first happened, gave them the opportunity to come back to work for as little as many hours as they needed to. Um, and in the midst of all that, we ended up hiring more folks. Great. Um... Ali, I'm gonna to turn to you and ask, um, 
how can other workforce organizations get started implementing these types of job quality strategies and reaching receptive businesses? What's, what's the first step? Well, it's a good question. I think something that has been really valuable to us is being able to connect with other workforce development providers. Um, so through forums like the National Fund for Workforce Solutions Community of Practice and um, you know, local um, communities of practice, um, like the ones that are led by associated black charities around racial equity and inclusion. Um, you know, it's really important to kind of um, share that expertise and kind of learn, you know, what other folks are doing um, and be able to kind of take a coordinated strategy. Because if you have, you know, only one workforce organi organization talking about job quality, then, you know, it's easy to say, okay, well, we just won't work with that one or we won't, um, you know, they're the difficult one. But I think like really incorporating this into your hiring strategy and being able to learn, um, you know, how to approach this and kind of speak the language of business in some ways. So, um, you know, I think that this can be sometimes a really um, tense conversation, um, particularly for small businesses who are really trying hard, um, but it feels like this all or nothing, like I'm good or I'm bad. Um, but being able to kind of really come in and work with the business and understand what that business needs, um, and you know, be able to use the experience that you have and the expertise that you have um, from you know training um, and and building skills among workers and that insight that you have into what you know workers need and what is going to be valuable to them um, to feel supported in the workplace, um, you know, can be really useful to um, businesses. And you know, if you approach it in a way that is helping them to solve problems. Um, you know, that are coming up or work towards the goals that they already have um, and incorporating that as sort of like a long-term partnership perspective, I think that it can be really valuable. Um, a question for the businesses about training. Um, as you've been pivoting, um, how are you training workers to learn new skills, particularly given your limited resources? Sean, do you wanna start? Yeah, I was <laughs> actually just sitting here thinking about that one. Um, a couple of things. So our business model in general um, is very straightforward. Unlike many other businesses where, you know, there's two and, you know, three week training, we've simplified our business in such a way that you can literally take someone off the street and within an hour or two, we train them, um, you know, to, to work at our organization. So we, I would say we kind of put the work in on the front end so that as we bring new folks in, um, they're easily trained also with the team members that we promoted uh, from within and we made the managers, they're kind of doubling down on the training. So they're working alongside with our new team members to reinforce any training that they, that they teach them. So, so. Uh, so I would say there's, there's two things. One, um, we started doing a lot of more peer to peer trainings. And so we didn't want um, to have, we're trying to minimize like having a large group, right? And so it would be that, so for an example, one thing, new thing that we started was having a sourdough pizza dough instead of using yeast. And so what it would be is that I would train this person, they would check it off and then they would train the next person. And so that it was minimizing the number of people having to interact, but it, it was getting everyone the training um, but also really empowering for our team and a better way to learn is to have to teach <laughs> someone else. Um, so that was really successful. 
Um, and the other thing I would say is, um, for example, um, Good Business Works offered up a, a management training. And, you know, as good business owners, we really wanted to be able to pay our team if they wanted to attend. But we also knew we didn't have just like eight hours of money just to pay them. And so what we actually did was say, if you take the training, one of the owners will take one of your shifts. You will get paid for the shift. Um, like the training was a Monday, Tuesday, we're closed Monday, Tuesday. So if you have a shift on Saturday, I'll take it. You'll get paid for it. And that was our creative way to be like, we want you to get paid. Um, but just like the cash flow is, is tight. So it's just been a lot of creativity, um, to see how we can make it happen. So another question we've gotten a few versions of, um, is um, what's been the biggest barrier for both of you to implementing job quality strategies? And do you have advice to other small businesses about how they could move beyond these kinds of barriers? And you may have thoughts about this too, having worked with, you know, a number of businesses that are trying to make job quality improvements in terms of sort of trends you've seen in barriers. Um, I would say, and I think some of it is also getting out of our own way, as Ali said, it's like you have this traditional idea of benefits that you want to offer your employees. Um, yeah, so health insurance is a huge one. We, we you know, have tried to think about it uh, uh, multiple different ways of like, how can we get health insurance? And it's still just like more cost effective for them to get it on the exchange at this point. Um, and so that's been a huge, a huge barrier for us. Um, and uh, so, yes, yeah, so some of it is just being like, okay, that's not something that's like an immediate thing we can do, but we will keep it on the list and we can keep working towards it. Um, just because it's just a huge you know, it's a huge thing in our world. Um, and so I think that has been, I think one of our greatest challenges um, so far. And I would say for us, one thing we've done, we've tried to find different ways to incentivize our team members while also accomplishing the goals. So more recently, um, we, we know that we needed a, a marketing video for, for our company. So we employed our team members to make a video. It had to include our location, our social media handles, any information that they want to include about themselves, um, the hours, the menu, different things like that. And we made it like a competition. So there's first, second, and third place. Um, they're using resources that they already have here in terms of their cell phones, um, the signage that's already here. Um, so, so basically we're, we're taking our business needs and we're kind of attaching fun, you know, ways of almost like games or, you know, structures that we could do so that they can that they benefit as, as well as us benefiting. And it also connects them a little bit more to the business. Allie, anything you want to add? Um, I think just, um, you know, Laura and Sean make really good points, but I think, um, you know, some of the barriers that I've seen up are both, or seen come up are both sort of a lot to do with the way that our systems and structures are designed. Um, so there is some of this mindset um, piece, but I think that it's also, um, you know, sort of the way that we've shaped some of these industries, particularly restaurants that rely on tipping. And that's just sort of a natural um, thing that consumers come to expect that, you know, I think as Laura sort of talked about that if you're eliminating that and raising prices, 
you know, is that going to detract customers or is that going to be, um, and so there need to be sort of these, these intermediary steps and support, um, you know, from, uh, you know, in educating the public about what that looks like and in being able to support businesses to transition to um, these job quality models. And I think something that's come up a lot in Baltimore is just, um, you know, how fickle, um, you know, the cost of rent and, um, you know, development can be, you know, as neighborhoods are sort of like rapidly changing in some cases, mm. it can be really hard for small business owners to stay afloat amidst that. And so I think, um, you know, a barrier sort of at the city level can be, um, you know, really um, being able to balance and budget for all of your costs over time if you don't own your space um, or if you're in, you know, um, like Laura or Sean, you know, this collective space that may kind of change over time. Um, so I think that those are two um, really important. And then of course, there's always sort of like individual barriers that you're seeing come up for um, small businesses. But I think, um, you know, something that both Laura and Sean um, mentioned um, was this barrier of transportation. So if people can't even get to your uh, place of work safely um, or in a timely way, um, there's data that shows that the average commute for Baltimore city workers is about 90 minutes. So, you know, that's a pretty big burden for someone who is working in a frontline, you know, service industry position. Um, and we have, um, you know, still really widespread neighborhood segregation. So of course that burden is falling disproportionately on, you know, low income um, black and brown communities. Um, so I think being able to create a more affordable and equitable transportation system is really key in being able to not only help um, workers get, you know, get their foot in the door in a job, but be able to advance into higher level positions and um, advance in their careers as well. Yeah, that's a critical point. Um, we've, we've seen a few versions of a question around sort of what can employers do given that they're really resource constrained right now. Um, so what do you see, Laura and Sean, as two to three job quality priorities um, small businesses with limited resources could realistically begin to implement right now? I guess, so simple low resource or no resource things, I guess, um, uh, is uh, consistent, clear scheduling and hours. I think that um, this service industry in general is known for like inconsistent, unguaranteed hours. Um, and so I think that that's something that we've been pretty committed to throughout the pandemic is this idea that like there's a lot of unknowns so we'll create as many knowns as possible um and so i think that has been one thing that our team has really appreciated um and then i think two is just maintaining those relationships and friendships i think that our team is closer um than we've ever been right and so the the ironic thing or like the interesting thing i keep thinking about is that in this world, you didn't necessarily get to pick the circle, like your pod, right? And so our kitchen family, that's our pod. That's who we interact with. Um, and so making that the best pod it could possibly be, right? Would our team necessarily pick me to be the person, like the one of the eight people that they get to interact with? 
maybe not but just trying to make that the like most positive space um because that's the reality that we're in so if they're not going to get to see their family or the people that they maybe their best friend or like the people that they really want to see um you know just making those that pod be great um so i guess those would be my top two things um that i can think of off the top of my head Yeah, and I would say similar to Laura, uh, flexible schedule. So we have, um, you know, no questions ask leave policy. I issue the schedule once a week. Um, and as long as our team members um, request time off or update their availability prior to the schedule going out, they generally get the exact schedule that they want. You know, if they want to take off for a couple of days or a week, if they only want to work the evening shift, you know, luckily we found a way that we're able to pretty much accommodate all of those requests. Um, also, I would say communication. That's one thing that all of my team members know, and I call them team members because we, you know, we're, we're team. We're not necessarily owner versus employee. Um, but one thing that all of my team members know is they can come to me and talk to me about anything, and I also talk to them about everything. So I've started to add more value in some of our communications. So more recently, I really honed in on uh, things like them buying a house, them investing in stocks. I mean, you know, not to go too deep, deep into it right now, but. The stock market went down back in March. And even though there was uncertain times, that was that was when I was pushing on my team members to say, hey, you know, invest your money, invest your money. You know, you can't go anywhere right now anyway. Everything's shut down. So as you're getting paid, invest your money. And here's what you, you know, here's how you go about doing that. Here's the potential benefits. Here's some of the results of doing that. So for us, I would say flexible schedules and also kind of giving them more than just a typical, you know, we're talking about chicken and wild poops today, you know, we're all, you know, we're going to talk about everything outside of that. So we're using some of the downtime that we had, because we do have quite a bit um, some days to actually talk about some of the things outside of the normal, the normal day-to-day -day work. Ali, I have a question here for you. Um, how many businesses does CivicWorks engage in this way and what's the scale? Um, what's the universe of businesses like this in the region that could potentially be engaged? Um, so I think that, you know, the universe is probably unlimited. I, our goal is really to be making this sort of, you know, in employee investment um, strategy and this focus on, you know, connecting good jobs um, with business success, um, you know, just a norm of doing business in Baltimore. Um, but right now we have about um, 30 businesses across the three sectors that we work in who are recognized in the Good Business Works directory, and that's growing all the time. So if you have a business you want to recommend, uh, you know, give us a shout. Um, but we probably have about double or triple that that have, you know, we've touched in some way. So, you know, with small business owners, we don't necessarily have like a monthly meeting that everyone can get together and, you know, attend at the same time. Um, so we're, you know, doing all kinds of different programming in order to be able to reach businesses sort of both one-on-one -on -one, working, you know, on individualized goals, um, you know, bringing businesses together to share, you know, expertise with one another through a peer network. Um, and also, you know, as Laura mentioned, sort of some of the, um, you know, special trainings that we'll offer around um, leadership or, you know, employee engagement or other kind of special topics that come up, you know, as we're meeting with business owners. Um, so right now we're really, you know, trying to, um, you know, lift up these stories and, you know, provide some examples of how businesses can get started on this pathway. Um, you know, this is a challenging time to, 
be, you know, starting to think about job quality, but I think it's, it's also a really important time when a lot of people are paying attention to that, um, you know, as I mentioned earlier. And so, um, you know, we just want to be able to partner with as many businesses as possible to help them kind of think through what that can look like in their own business. Um, and in addition to retail and restaurant, um, you know, Civic Works has been working for a long time in um, green construction industries. So, um, you know, we have some, you know, really deep partnerships with companies in um, like solar um, installation and weatherization um, and, you know, other suite of um, home improvement industries. Um, and, you know, there's a whole unique approach to looking at job quality in those sectors as well. Sean, I'm going to ask you one quick question, then hand it to Tom to ask a closing question before we wind down. Um, but we've had a lot of interest in the pipeline program that you described. Um, so wondering if you can say another word about that, but in particular, um, somebody says, I love Sean's model of positioning workers to move into other jobs and other businesses. However, six to 12 months sounds like a very short time for employees to turn over, especially if the business is investing a lot in its employees. So the question is, do you believe the investment in job quality yields um, a sufficient return on investment um, given the short tenure among the workers? Certainly, Jenny. So, in, and Carr and I have talked a lot about this in terms of the time. Being very realistic, I would say in the restaurant industry, at least from what we've seen, three months is a win. You know, we have some folks that are coming in and, you know, after a month, they have so many other things going on in their lives, whether it's, it's transportation coming to work or family structure. Sometimes it's hard just getting a month out of some of our team members, a solid month. Um, so for us to go six to 12 months, we, we feel as though it should be rewarded. And it's not to say that they will move on, but at least to start gearing them up and being prepared to move on to the next opportunity. Um, sometimes just having that interview, whether they get it or not, just having an interview kind of shows them that there are other opportunities out here outside of just what Sean is telling them every day, um, the things that they could do. So six to 12 months, it does seem, sound a little short in most industries where folks, you know, workers are there for maybe two to, to five years. But I feel as though in the restaurant industry, six to 12 months is long term. Um, so what, what the pipeline is, what the pipeline project is, is that we have individuals that come to us. Most of them do not want to be in the restaurant industry. So let's say it's someone that wants to own a spa, you know, or a nail salon. They, they work with us. And a lot of the skills they learn here are transferable. So working with the cash register, doing the marketing, doing the payroll, all those types of things are transferable to other types of businesses. Um, but what we're hoping is that while they're here, they do an excellent job with us and that we'll train them and that we'll recommend them to go elsewhere, whether it's connecting them with organizations like Civic Works or small business lending programs throughout the city, um, or even leasing reps, folks that we've met when we're looking for spaces um, for us to expand to. So we're hoping that while them coming here and staying here and doing a great job, they'll build the confidence and they'll also make the connections to go elsewhere. And, and rather than them just leaving and going to another food job, which most of them would do if, if there's no incentive for them, um, they'll leave and actually go on and do something that they truly want to do and actually follow their passion. So this has been an amazing conversation. I've been listening really quietly, but intently on on it, and I really appreciate uh, everything that y'all, Ali and Laura and Sean have had to say. I'm gonna ask one closing question, which of course is a big one, but I'll ask you to answer in just 30 seconds since we're almost out of time. 
we've focused this entire conversation on what's happening in the pandemic. But if you think beyond that kind of magical date of April 1st in the spring, maybe things are coming back to normal. For Laura and Sean, I'd be really curious to know what is your vision for what your workforce could look like in the future and what you would, what you would love to see in terms of your workforce, you know, not even just spring, but maybe five years from now. So if you want, I can actually start off on that one. Um, so we are, we've taken a moment and we've kind of slowed down some of our expansion, but ultimately we want to have economies in every major city throughout the U.S. We want to have what we consider an affordable franchise. So we're hoping that the team members that are currently with us um, or, or future team members will be the ones that we actually franchise out to. So what we're hoping is that um, in the coming months and years, as we expand, we will take our current team members and either make them managers or ultimately make them franchise owners of the, of the locations that we expand to um, prior to going to outside, outside folks. Um, we're also hoping that the team members we have here, um, fingers crossed, <laughs> we can get laptops or um, iPads for all of our team members so that they can either further education if they're not interested in, in staying in this world um, or they can continue to assist Connie's in, in the work that we do. Love that. Thank you, Sean. So I'd say one thing that we were starting to dip our toes into a little bit before, but now we're it's on pause, but we would love to get back to is kind of just like alternative pay structure and profit share models, um, employee ownership. What do those different models look like? How can we make them a reality um, for our business? And then the other, the second thing is really um, to, to work on our diversity and, and racial equity. Um, you know, of our 17 members, three are people of color, four, four are not. Um, so in order to reflect the demographics of Baltimore, our next nine hires would need to be people of color. And we are very hard, far from hiring nine people. Um, and um, But that would be the goal is that we can really not only uh, expand through hiring, but also expand our leadership um, to, be, to be more diverse and reflective of the city of Baltimore for sure. Awesome, thank you so much, Laura. Thank you again to Tom and the National Fund team for your incredible partnership in this work, to Gayatri, Ali, Sean, and Laura for joining us today. This was such a great discussion and it really underscored why it's so important that we all do our part to support small businesses and their workers to weather this pandemic, so thank you. And thank you to Aspen for hosting this panel. It's been fabulous to be a part of and I'm really excited to see how this work moves forward. Um, appreciate my Aspen Institute colleagues for their support organizing and thanks to all of you in the audience for joining us and sharing your questions and comments. Um, please take a moment to respond to our quick feedback survey which will pop up momentarily. Thanks again to all of you. Um, really appreciate this conversation. Thanks everyone.